Section 28 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 13. From now on to Saxon, life seemed bereft of its last reason and rhyme. It had become senseless, nightmarish. Anything irrational was possible. There was nothing stable in the anarchic flux of affairs that swept her on, she knew not to what catastrophic end. Had Billy been dependable, all would have still been well. With him to cling to, she would have faced everything fearlessly. But he had been whirled away from her in the prevailing madness. So radical was the change in him that he seemed almost an intruder in the house. Spiritually, he was such an intruder. Another man looked out of his eyes. A man whose thoughts were of violence and hatred. A man to whom there was no good in anything, and who had become an ardent protagonist of the evil that was rampant and universal. This man could no longer condemn Bert, himself muttering vaguely of dynamite and sabotage and revolution. Saxon strove to maintain that sweetness and coolness of flesh and spirit that Billy had praised in the old days. Once only she lost control. He had been in a particularly ugly mood, and a final harshness and unfairness cut her to the quick. "'Who are you speaking to?' she flamed out at him. He was speechless and abashed, and could only stare at her face, which was white with anger. "'Don't you ever speak to me like that again, Billy,' she commanded. "'Ah, oh, can't you put up with a piece of bad temper?' he muttered, half apologetically, yet half defiantly. God knows, I've got enough to make me cranky. After he left the house, she flung herself on the bed and cried heartbrokenly. For she, who knew so thoroughly the humility of love, was a proud woman. Only the proud can be truly humble, and only the strong may know the fullness of gentleness. But what was the use, she demanded, of being proud and game, when the only person in the world who mattered to her lost his own pride in gameness and fairness and gave her the worst share of their mutual trouble. And now, as she faced alone the deeper, organic hurt of the loss of her baby, she faced alone another and, in a way, an even greater personal trouble. Perhaps she loved Billy nonetheless, but her love was changing into something less proud less confident, less trusting. It was becoming shot through with pity, with the pity that is parent to contempt. Her own loyalty was threatening to weaken, and she shuddered and shrank from the contempt she could see creeping in. She struggled to steel herself to face the situation. Forgiveness stole into her heart, and she knew relief until the thought came that in the truest, highest love Forgiveness should have no place, and again she cried, and continued her battle. After all, one thing was incontestable. This Billy was not the Billy she had loved. This Billy was another man, a sick man, and no more to be held responsible than a fever patient in the ravings of delirium. She must be Billy's nurse, without pride, without contempt, with nothing to forgive. Besides, 
he was really bearing the brunt of the fight, was in the thick of it, dizzy with the striking of blows and the blows he received. If fault there was, it lay elsewhere, somewhere in the tangled scheme of things that made men snarl over jobs like dogs over bones. Saxon arose and buckled on her armor again for the hardest fight of all in the world's arena, the woman's fight. She ejected from her thought all doubting and distrust. She forgave nothing, for there was nothing requiring forgiveness. She pledged herself to an absoluteness of belief that her love in Billy's was unsullied, unperturbed, severe as it had always been, as it would be when it came back again after the world settled down once more to rational ways. That night when he came home, she proposed, as an emergency measure, that she should resume her needlework and help keep the pot boiling until the strike was over. But Billy would hear nothing of it. It's all right, he assured her repeatedly. There ain't no call for you to work. I'm going to get some money before the week is out, and I'll turn it over to you, and Saturday night we'll go to the show, a real show, no moving pictures. Harvey's nigger minstrels is coming to town. We'll go Saturday night. I'll have the money before that, as sure as beans is beans. Friday evening he did not come home to supper, which Saxon regretted, for Maggie Donahue had returned a pan of potatoes and two quarts of flour borrowed the week before, and it was a hearty meal that awaited him. Saxon kept the stove going till nine o'clock, when, despite her reluctance, she went to bed. Her preference would have been to wait up, but she did not dare, knowing full well what the effect would be on him, did he come home in liquor. The clock had just struck one when she heard the click of the gate. Slowly, heavily, ominously, she heard him come up the steps and fumble with his key at the door. He entered the bedroom, and she heard him sigh as he sat down. She remained quiet, for she had learned the hypersensitiveness induced by drink, and was fastidiously careful not to hurt him even with the knowledge that she had lain awake for him. It was not easy. Her hands were clenched till the nails dented the palms, and her body was rigid in her passionate effort for control. Never had he come home as bad as this. Saxon, he called thickly, Saxon. She stirred and yawned. What is it, she asked. Won't you strike a light? My fingers is all thumbs. Without looking at him, she complied, but so violent was the nervous trembling of her hands that the glass chimney tinkled against the globe and the match went out. I ain't drunk, Saxon, he said in the darkness, a hint of amusement in his thick voice. I've only had two or three jolts of that sort. On her second attempt, with the lamp, she succeeded. When she turned to look at him, she screamed with fright. Though she had heard his voice and knew him to be Billy, for the instant she did not recognize him. His face was a face she had never known, swollen, bruised, discolored. Every feature had been beaten out of all semblance of familiarity. One eye was entirely closed, the other showed through a narrow slit of blood congested flesh. One ear seemed to have lost most of its skin. 
The whole face was a swollen pulp. His right jaw, in particular, was twice the size of his left. No wonder his speech had been thick, was her thought, as she regarded the fearfully cut and swollen lips that still bled. She was sickened by the sight, and her heart went out to him in a great wave of tenderness. She wanted to put her arms around him and cuddle and soothe him, but her practical judgment bade otherwise. "'You poor, poor boy,' she cried. "'Tell me what you want me to do first. I don't know about such things.' "'If you could help me get my clothes off,' he suggested meekly and thickly. "'I got em on before I stiffened up.' "'And then hot water. That will be good,' she said. And she began gently drawing his coat sleeve over a puffed and helpless hand. "'I told you they was all thumbs,' he grimaced, holding up his hand and squinting at it with a fraction of sight remaining to him. "'You sit and wait,' she said, "'till I start the fire again.' and get hot water going. I won't be a minute. Then I'll finish getting your clothes off. From the kitchen, she could hear him muttering to himself, and when she returned, he was repeating over and over, We needed the money, Saxon, we needed the money. Drunken he was not, she could see that, and from his babbling, she knew he was partly delirious. He was a surprise box, he wondered on, while she proceeded to undress him, and bit by bit, she was able to piece together what had happened. He was an unknown from Chicago. They sprang him on me. The secretary of the Acme Club warned me I'd have my hands full, and I'd a won if I'd been in condition. But fifteen pounds off without training ain't condition. Then I'd been drinking pretty regular, and I didn't have my wind. But Saxon, stripping his undershirt, no longer hurt him, as, with his face, she could not recognize his splendidly muscled back. The white sheath of silken skin was torn and bloody. The lacerations occurred oftenest in horizontal lines, though there were perpendicular lines as well. "'How did you get all that?' she asked. "'The ropes. I was up against them more times than I like to remember. Gee, he certainly gave me mine. But I fooled him. He couldn't put me out. I lasted the twenty rounds, and I wanted to tell you he's got some marks to remember me by. If he ain't got a couple of knuckles broken in the left hand, I'm a geezer. Here, feel my head. Swollen, huh? Sure thing. He hit that more times than he's wishing he had right now. But oh, what a lacing. What a lacing. I never had anything like it before. The Chicago Terror, they call him. I take my hat off to him. He's some bear. But I could have made him take the count if I'd been in condition and had my wind. Oh, ouch, watch out. It's like a boil. Fumbling at his waistband, Saxon's hand had come in contact with a brightly inflamed surface larger than a soup plate. That's from the kidney blows, Billy explained. He was a regular devil at it. Most every clench, like clockwork, down he'd chop one on me. It got so sore I was wincin' until I was groggy and didn't know much of anything. It ain't a knockout blow, you know, but it's awful wearin' in a long fight. It takes the starch out of you. When his knees were bared, Saxon could see the skin across the kneecaps was broken and gone. The skin 
ain't made to stand a heavy fellow like me on the knees, he volunteered, and the rosin in the canvas cuts like Sam Hill. The tears were in Saxon's eyes, and she could have cried over the manhandled body of her beautiful sick boy. As she carried his pants across the room to hang them up, a jingle of money came from them. He called her back, and from the pocket drew forth a handful of silver. We needed the money, we needed the money, he kept muttering, as he vainly tried to count the coins, and Saxon knew that his mind was wandering again. It cut her to the heart, for she could not but remember the harsh thoughts that had threatened her loyalty during the week past. After all, Billy, the splendid physical man, was only a boy, her boy, and he had faced and endured all this terrible punishment for her, for the house and the furniture, that were their house and furniture. He said so now, when he scarcely knew what he said. He said, we needed the money. She was not so absent from his thoughts as she had fancied. Here, down to the naked, tie-ribs of his soul, when he was half unconscious, the thought of her persisted was uppermost. We needed the money. We. The tears were trickling down her cheeks as she bent over him, and it seemed she had never loved him so much as now. Here, you count, he said, abandoning the effort and handing the money to her. How much do you make it? Nineteen dollars and thirty-five cents. That's right, the loser's end, twenty dollars. I had some drinks and treated a couple of the boys, and then there was car fare. If I'd won, I'd got a hundred. That's what I fought for. It put us on easy street for a while. You take it and keep it. It's better than nothing. In bed he could not sleep because of his pain, and hour by hour she worked over him, renewing the hot compresses over his bruises, soothing the lacerations with witch hazel and cold cream and the tenderest of fingertips. All the while, with broken intervals of groaning, he babbled on, living over the fight, seeking relief in telling her his trouble, voicing regret at the loss of the money, and crying out the hurt to his pride. Far worse than the sum of his physical hurts was his hurt pride. He couldn't put me away anyway. He had full swing at me in the times when I was too much in to get my hands up. The crowd was crazy. I showed him some stamina. There was times when he only rocked me, for I'd evaporated plenty of his steam for him in the opening rounds. I don't know how many times he dropped me. Things was getting too dreamy. Sometimes toward the end, I could see three of him in the ring at once, and I wouldn't know which to hit and which to duck. But I fooled him. When I couldn't see or feel, and when my knees was shaking and my head going like a merry-go-round, I'd fall safe in the clenches just the same. I bet the referee's arms is tired from dragging us apart. But what a lacing, what a lacing. Say, Saxon, where are you? Oh, there, huh? I guess I was dreaming. But say, let this be a lesson to you. I broke my word and went fighting. And see what I got? Look at me and take warning. So you won't make the same mistake and go making and selling fancy work again. But I fooled him, everybody. At the beginning... The betting was even. By the sixth round, 
the wise gazebos were offering two to one against me. I was licked from the first drop out of the box. Anybody could see that. But he couldn't put me down for the count. By the tenth round, they was offering even that I wouldn't last the round. And at the eleventh, they was offering I wouldn't last the fifteenth. And I lasted the whole twenty. But some punishment. I want to tell you, some punishment. Why, there was four rounds. I was in dreamland all the time. Only I kept on my feet and fought, or took the count to eight and got up, and stalled and covered and wanged away. I don't know what I'd done, except I must have done like that, because I wasn't there. I don't know a thing from the thirteenth, when he sent me to the mat on my head, till the eighteenth. Where was I? Oh, yes, I opened my eyes, or one eye, because I had only one that would open. And there I was in my corner, with the towels going and ammonia in my nose, and Bill Murphy with a chunk of ice at the back of my neck. And there, across the ring, I could see the Chicago Terror, and I had to do some thinking to remember I was fighting him. It was like I'd been away somewhere and just got back. What rounds is coming, I asked Bill. The eighteenth, says he. The hell, I says. What come of all the other rounds? The last I was fighting was in the thirteenth. You're a wonder, says Bill. You've been out for four rounds. Only nobody knows it except me. I've been trying to get you to quit all the time. Just then the gong sounds, and I can see the terror starting for me. Quit, says Bill, making a move to throw in the towel. Not on your life, I says. Drop it, Bill. But he went on, wanting me to quit. By that time the terror had come across to my corner, and was standing with his hands down looking at me. The referee was looking, too, and the house was that quiet, looking. You could hear a pin drop, and my head was getting some clearer, but not much. You can't win, Bill says. Watch me, says I, and with that I make a rush for the terror. Catching him unexpected. I'm that groggy I can't stand, but I just keep a going, walloping the terror clear across the ring to his corner, where he slips and falls, and I fall on top of him. Say, that crowd goes crazy. Where was I? My head's still going round, I guess. It's buzzing like a swarm of bees. You had just fallen on top of him in the corner, Saxon prompted. Oh, yes, well, no sooner are we on our feet, and I can't stand, I rush him the same way, back across to my corner, and fall on him. That was luck. We got up, and I'd have fallen, only I clenched and held myself up by him. I got your goat, I says to him, and now I'm going to eat you up. I hadn't his goat, but I was playing to get a piece of it. And I got it, rushing him as soon as the referee drags us apart, and fetching him a lucky wallop in the stomach, that steadied him and made him almighty careful. Too almighty careful. He was afraid to chance a mix with me. He thought I had more fight left in me than I had. So, you see, I got that much of his goat anyway. And he couldn't get me. He didn't get me. And in the twentieth, we stood in the middle of the ring and exchanged wallops even. Of course, I'd made a fine showing for a licked man, but he got the decision, which was right. But I fooled him. He couldn't get me. 
and I fooled the gazebos that was bettin' he would on short order. At last, as dawn came on, Billy slept. He groaned and moaned, his face twisting with pain, his body vainly moving and tossing in quest of easement. So this was prize-fighting, Saxon thought. It was much worse than she had dreamed. She had had no idea that such damage could be wrought with padded gloves. He must never fight again. Street rioting was preferable. She was wondering how much of his silk had been lost when he mumbled and opened his eyes. What is it? she asked, ere it became to her that his eyes were unseeing and that he was in delirium. Saxon, Saxon, he called. Yes, Billy, what is it? His hand fumbled over the bed where ordinarily it would have encountered her. Again he called her, and she cried her presence loudly in his ear. He sighed with relief and muttered brokenly, I had to do it. We needed the money. His eyes closed, and he slept more soundly, though his muttering continued. She had heard of congestion of the brain and was frightened. Then she remembered his telling her of the ice Billy Murphy had held against his head. Throwing a shawl over her head, she ran to the pile driver's home on 7th Street. The barkeeper had just opened and was sweeping out. From the refrigerator, he gave her all the ice she wished to carry, breaking it into convenient pieces for her. Back in the house, she applied the ice to the base of Billy's brain, placed hot irons to his feet, and bathed his head with witch hazel, made cool by resting on the ice. He slept in the darkened room until late afternoon, when, to Saxon's dismay, he insisted on getting up. Gotta make a show, and he explained. They ain't going to have the laugh on me. In torment, he was helped by her to dress, and in torment, he went forth from the house so that his world should have ocular evidence that the beating he had received did not keep him in bed. It was another kind of pride, different from a woman's, and Saxon wondered if it were the less admirable for that. End of section 28